Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, and I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. Dear 20-something started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful woman they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts we process internally, Dear 20-something is a space where listeners can hear insights, ask questions, and ultimately get advice from the woman they most admire. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Karen Kahn. Karen is the founder and CEO of iFundWomen, the world's largest funding marketplace for women-owned businesses and the people who want to support them with access to capital, coaching, and connections, all designed to launch and grow profitable, sustainable businesses. Since founding iFundWomen, thousands of women-owned companies who started their businesses on the iFundWomen platform have raised over $135 million in early-stage capital and have created over 30,000 jobs helping to fuel the startup and small business economy. Named to Inc. Magazine's Top 100 Female Founders of 2020 and the City and State of New York's Most Responsible CEOs of 2020, Karen is a true pioneer in tech and media. Karen was an early very early, Google entrepreneur spending 10 years leading sales teams in search, display, and video. Most notably, in 2006, Karen started the branded entertainment business at YouTube by making powerful and substantive connections between big global brands and creators, resulting in the creation of the first native video ad experiences that helped creators make exponentially more money from their YouTube videos. Karen then went on to spend three years at AOL, where she started AOL's Female Creative Economy in video by funding and monetizing dozens of women-produced, premium-quality video series, resulting in AOL nabbing its first-ever Emmy nod. Very cool. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Karen Kahn. Welcome. Thank you so much, Erica. What an intro. Yeah, I guess I've done all that stuff. I guess you have. You lived a great life. I know. And bye-bye. It's over. Peace, people. I'm just kidding. I love it. Whenever I I share that, people are like, oh, yeah, I guess I have done stuff. You kind of forget, I think, like when you just share the bio and you're like, okay, yeah, I know what I've done, whatever. But to hear it and to hear some of the numbers, like 135 million, you got to really hear that. That's not just like a number on a bio. That's like a big thing. It is. And we're really proud of that, Erica. We did a five-year impact study at iPhone Women just literally this past November. And we studied the women who are paying members of iFund Women. It's a freemium model, and there's lots of free members who take advantage of all the free resources, and that's great. But we really wanted to look at the women who have hired us to help them start their businesses and look at the efficacy of our programming. And we didn't have to survey them because we have all the data in-house. And $135 million in early-stage capital that they wouldn't have had access to otherwise if we didn't just hang up a shingle as three co-founders five years ago to say like, hey, we're starting a funding platform. Who needs funding? And the numbers around funding for women entrepreneurs, as I'm sure you know, are egregious. Men receive more than 97% of venture capital dollars. So women receive 2.3%. Female founders of color receive 0.64%. The numbers are, we're a rounding error. And so That's why we started the company, basically, to provide an alternative funding source so women can get their businesses off the ground. Because frankly, as you well know, and as so many research pieces and studies and all the things have shown that when women are given the funding and the resources that we need to start our businesses, we drive exponentially better results for whether it's the fund, 
that's invested in us or just frankly, the bottom line revenue per dollar invested. Women are just more responsible, better entrepreneurs. It's actually funny. We became profitable for the first year in 2021, which is super exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. And my accountant called me like in a panic the other week. And he's like, why are you profitable? Pardon me? He's like, what are you doing being profitable? I'm like, well, we're profitable. Like, that's great. Our investors are psyched. You know, we're going and raising a Series A. Series A investors are fired up. I'm like, I'm not Jeff Bezos. I can't just be not profitable forever. And he's like, well, you know, you're gonna have to pay taxes. I'm like, happily. I will happily pay my taxes. I'd rather be profitable than monkey up the numbers to make us unprofitable. It's the mentality of the male gaze on startups is fundamentally flawed. I will say that. I mean, everything you're saying, I'm just like, yes, yes. And even the fact that in your bio, the number that you are sharing is so, I think, feminine in its sharing. Like, you're not sharing, we're not doing this much revenue. You know, you're not sharing like all the stuff that we're 10xing, 20xs. And yeah, sure, maybe that's in the investor deck because you need to get money. But what you guys care about is the impact. It's the lack of access that wouldn't be there without you. And so I think even just looking at the 30,000 jobs and the 135 million in early access, I mean, it's even the metrics you're picking are not even the ones that are prioritizing that like run at all paces and generate revenue at a profit loss. And, and you know, it's just, it's very interesting hearing you describe that because I'm like, yeah, you're right. Even the way we talk about it is tend, there tends to be a masculine way and a feminine way when talking about things like this. Absolutely. And women get penalized for it in the venture capital world. They do yet women exit their businesses faster and for more money. It's very hard being iFund women. I'm not pointing at me being like, I'm iFund women. Believe me, the team is iFund women. This is definitely not the Karen Khan show. I could not do this alone. Believe me. My team is incredible. But it is really hard for iFund women to be sort of in the quote unquote venture capital space. Because when you think of venture capital, it's capital for your venture, for your business, right? So we're not VCs. Although we have made seven recent equity investments in iFund women companies that have started with us, which was really exciting. So iFund women as a VC happening. But for the most part, we are a funding platform for non-dilutive capital. But we play in this sort of like we fund startup space and I'm on panels and our sort of compatriots are VCs, but we just don't fit in. We don't fit in because the metrics to your point that we care about are, of course, revenue, profitability, sustainability, and what we go out to market with are our impact numbers. Because if our products are working and if our products have efficacy to our customers and our customers are coming back and they're spreading the word, our traffic is organic. We spend very little, if not I mean, peanuts on paid ads because you know we want to ride that wave of just organic traffic so we can continue to learn without artificially driving traffic and driving customers to our site. And I do think that's a woman thing. And I think we're more responsible entrepreneurs. If you're going to make an investment, I would much more prefer to trust a woman who is a second time or a third time startup founder. This is in my first rodeo. And someone who is watching the bottom line like a hawk, essentially, and not just spending like a wild animal. Because it matters. Yeah, it really does matter. And I love this point about like organic marketing and 
that is why you're probably able to be profitable <laughs> because you see people drive themselves in this marketing hole and like it's really cool that you guys are able to do that. So we're going to get into all the details of iFundWomen in a bit. It's so cool what you guys are doing. And I am personally just a fan because I think we share similar missions with getting access to capital for female entrepreneurs and even more so like women of color because the point six gives me hives when you say that. So let's get started. So before we dive into your 20s, which we will do, we like to start every show with a fun question. So what is something new that you learned in this past week? It could be maybe a podcast line you heard, an article you read. Maybe it's a stat that you, you know, learned from your time at iPhone Woman. So this is something maybe unexpected, but so we are, and when I say we, I'm referring to iPhone Women, we're very in tune and always have been from day one about mental health as it relates to the workplace. We've had unlimited mental health days that people can take. And we encourage people to say like, I need a day. I need a minute. I need a personal day. I need a mental health day, however you want to say it. And we got your back because I would so much rather that than someone lie and be like, Karen, I'm sick. I can't come in. When they're heartbroken, like we've all been through it where you're like, you're heartbroken, your pet passes away. You're just like hormonally feeling imbalanced, whatever it is, you need a freaking day off. And so we're very, very big into sort of like the whole mind, body and work relationship. So I learned in the last week or so about scream therapy and it works. So I was at an event in LA, it was on the beach and I'm in New York. And so I rarely get out to like the Pacific Ocean, which as you know, is like this vast thing. It's almost, it's just awesome in the greatest sense of the word. And so I was at this event and one of the things at the event was this silent disco at six in the morning out on the beach. And it was about 15 people and like this unbelievable DJ. And we had on big headsets. We spread out for about half a mile down the beach. So I didn't see really anyone around me and it was a little foggy. And it was supposed to be just like a 6 a.m. like dance, like beach rave thing. And then I sort of got this idea because I was, I had a lot of sort of like toxic energy stored in my hips, which is where women can tend to store stress, hips, shoulders, it's all kind of interrelated. So I just started and no one was around me. No one could hear me. I started screaming at the top of my lungs. No words, just sounds almost like an ohm, but not even really into the Pacific Ocean. And then I started screaming words, but like not like curse words or anything, just like I started screaming at the top of my lungs. And after that, I felt so much better. So I've started scream therapy. So sometimes when the kids are not in the house, I will scream at the top of my lungs for like 30 seconds, which is kind of a long time. And it is the biggest stress reliever. So I can't recommend scream therapy enough. That is unreal. That is one of the best answers we've gotten to this. And I love that it's like a tangible thing people can take away. So, okay, you have this experience. Also, I'm from LA, so I totally love the beach, love the Pacific Ocean. And the fact that you were able to go with no one there really, also very cool. Well, there were people there, but we all had these headphones on and like literally spread out. But I kind of didn't care either, to be honest. I'm like, yeah, also not crowded at 6 a.m. Okay, so you do this and you're like, wow, that was relieving. And then were you like, is there a science behind this? Is there therapy behind this? And like, or do you just like, you know what? I know it works for me and now I'm just going to do it. Or did you like look into the science of screen therapy? Or you're just like, I'm going to do it now. 
Yeah, Erica, I tend to just discover things on my own. I'm sure, I am sure there is a thing. I have not done the Googling because homie does not have time. Literally doesn't have time. But it works for you. But it works for me and I'm sure there's something. Well, I know obviously talk therapy has been proven. When you get the words out of your body, you're moving energy through your body and that is helpful for stress. So I can imagine like scream therapy makes it exponentially more cleansing. But I know I haven't done the Googling. Sophia will do the Googling. Sophia works with Karen for listeners, so they're in on the joke. Okay, perfect. So that's hilarious. Thank you for sharing. I will definitely give that a try. I do have a question on just, you talk about this like wellness piece and how women carry stress in all these areas. Is that something that you guys have explored or offer with your female entrepreneur clients? Like I imagine they come to you and they're like, I'm building this thing I really believe in, but oh my gosh, I have to deal with employee handbooks and I have to deal with investors and all these things. Like, Maybe could you talk a little bit about that? Like, how do you guys support your clients in that way? And then we'll dive into your 20s. But I would love to know a little bit about that. So within the funding marketplace, we built an ed tech. It's kind of like startup school. And you can do private one-on-one 30-minute nano sessions where we're solving one problem in one 30-minute nano session. And it could be anything from your business plan, your pricing model, your hiring plan, obviously how to crowdfund, how to raise VC, all these things. And we have a thing called start a founder therapy sesh. And it's so fascinating because when we created the curriculum for the private sessions, start a founder therapy sesh was my idea. Most of these coaching calls turn into, if we don't rein them in right at the beginning, say, okay, you signed up for business planning. You are paying me to help you with your business plan for 30 minutes. Like, let's get to it. Typically, we try to be disciplined. Sometimes, a founder gets on the phone and they really need to get some stuff off their chest. They need a therapy sesh. And so it's quite interesting because we have found that hardly anyone will go and book that session. I think there's like shame around it. I do not know why, but people will book every other session and use part of their session for therapy. Isn't that wild? It's almost like you're associating like, oh, I have stress about raising VC. And I need to get this off my chest. So you associate it maybe with that planning session, but there's like all these other layers to it. So it's not so black and white. Like I think when we think of, I mean, at least for myself, it's like, oh, I've stressed around this topic. So I'm gonna go deal with the topic. And then there's all these other things around it that I need to tackle. But sometimes it's hard to separate the topic from like, maybe I just need to talk to someone separate from whatever's going on. Absolutely. I've made my real therapist, my my startup therapist. I mean, the woman at this point is like an entrepreneur. She's telling me, but but it's true. I mean, I go to a lot of therapy and I love therapy because you have to get it out. You have to talk through things because you're right. Whether it's raising VC and all the things around that, there's invariably going to be things about you, things about the team, things that are soft skills that you have to hone or fears that you have to just like let out and get an opinion on. And I know that like there's this whole movement around like imposter syndrome doesn't exist. Stop saying blah, 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 blah with women. And no one can say woke anymore. Like there's words that are canceled. I can't even freaking keep up. And honestly, I could care and I could care less. But the truth is, even I have imposter syndrome all the time around certain topics. Lots of topics. I'm like, I got this, like qualified, overqualified, fine. There are a few things where I'm like, it's not like I feel like an imposter because I'm not trying to pretend that I know things I don't know. And maybe that's where like the imposter syndrome thing kind of went down the rail or off the rails because like an imposter is a fraud. 
technically, right? So like, I can understand why that's that has been kind of canceled. But the idea of not feeling comfortable in your skill set to handle a certain problem, that's kind of been lumped in imposter syndrome. So maybe we can come up with another word for it. I don't know. But yeah, I go to therapy like three times a week for it. Yeah, it's really important. I love that she's now telling you how to run your business. It's like the tables have turned. Yeah, well, she's telling me how to deal with different personalities because we have a team of about 30. And I was listening to one of your previous podcasts. I think it was your last one with a woman you were talking about leadership and managing a team. And she was a young CEO who had a very large team. Taylor, she's great. And I really related to Taylor because managing a team and also preserving the incredible culture that we started with virtually is so hard. It's so hard. And especially with the great resignation and all of these huge companies needing amazing workers, we are dealing with these huge banks are like poaching our people. It's very hard. Left, right, and center with seven-figure jobs. So part of me is proud. I'm like, we hired an amazing team at iPhone Women coming from Google and having my brain being part of their hiring algorithm. I'm an amazing hirer. Like I'm just an amazing hirer. And we pay well. Our benefits are awesome. 401k with matching, like all the things. Like we run the company like Google, truly, because your people are your most important asset. But at the end of the day, if someone is feeling unheard or unseen at their little home office, because, you know, we're remote, even though we have an office, and it's funny, we have an office, everyone's like, please, can we have the office back? I'm like, yes. Got the office back in New York. You know who goes there? One person, Julia Steele, shout out, head of marketing communications. And she's on the older end of the spectrum for our employee base. All of the younger people, the 20-somethings, they were like, we want the office, we want the office, we'll use it. I'm like, great, we got the office back. They're never there. Not going. No. And I'm like, guys, we have such a great culture. We have so much fun. Like, it's ridiculous how much fun we have when we're together. And fun is important. Fun is very, very important at work, in my opinion. And I'm unabashedly saying that we run a financial services company and fun is very important. When you're not there with people, it's not fun. And so when people are just like, you know, listen, I feel sort of sometimes inertia for this chair. Like I don't get up from it for days on end sometimes, even though I know I have an office to go into. And so there's no shade for the people not coming into the office because I'm not coming in that often either, quite frankly. Like I get it. You get more work done at home than you can get your other stuff done. But the flip side of that is, is the feelings of loneliness, the feelings of isolation, the feelings of not being seen, the feelings of your work not being recognized, even if they are. And so managing teams through this remote world is really, really, really challenging. Oh, absolutely. And I think hearing it from you, I mean, it's kind of on opposite ends, like Taylor's a boss. She's incredible, but she's still on the younger end. And you're someone who's like, like you said, a great hire, have had a long career. And hearing you say that too, I think is really powerful. And I think everyone's doing their best, but it is like you said, like, I think management and teams are struggling with like, what does everyone need? And also everyone now has differing needs. You know, some people really want certain things. And so how can you be flexible, but still set boundaries, still create that fun, but make sure people feel like they have autonomy? It's, I mean, I do not envy it. I have absolutely no idea. Yeah, but I think all we can do is do our best. And like, we're gonna learn a lot of things coming out of this, but it is a time of transition and shifting. And like, 
people are going to poach and people are going to go and some people are going to stay and some people are going to be content and some people are not. And I think it's one of those things where it's like, you can just be the amazing hire and boss you are. And that is what it is. And it is hard no matter your age or experience. Absolutely. Entrepreneurship is really a universal experience. I think it transcends age. I mean, it doesn't transcend race, which I would love it to, but it doesn't because it's exponentially easier for white women than it is for Black women and Hispanic Latinx women. However, for women in general as a large collective, it's very, very challenging to get our businesses funded. But white privilege, just in the fact that like my white skin allows me privileges to have ideas and be able to voice them, whether I'm in a corporate setting or in a startup setting, or just be left alone to be having my thoughts and doing my thing versus my women of color counterparts, not at iPhone women, obviously, but you know, when I was working at Google or AOL, you think they're speaking up in meetings? No. And you want to know why? Fear of getting side eye, shit from their boss, fired. Like those things have not gone away. But coming back to the point of entrepreneurship and especially sort of foundership is a very universal experience. And so Taylor, who's in her late 20s and I'm in my late 40s, we're dealing with the same stuff, right? I've had more experience dealing with some of the people stuff, but this new world is a big challenge. And I don't, I don't even remember what's better, but I, I would wonder from you, like, what do you think was better before COVID when everyone was, we never forced anyone to go into the office. We always had a super flexible kind of work policy, but people went in because we were all kind of there. But if people didn't want to go in like on a Friday or like it was very flexible, but people were in the office for the most part and now people are not. And I mean, I kind of yearn for like 2019. I hate to say it. Not that I yearn for the, for the political atmosphere, but I do yearn for the office atmosphere. What were you doing back then? Were you working in an office? Yeah, I, I was working in the office and I loved it. I mean, I'm also such an extrovert and I love people and I crave that connection. And I've only been building startups. That's been my whole career. And you need a small team, you need to commit a committed team and you need to have fun. I love what you said about that. And I think it's so true. And maybe it's also a personality thing. Like I am that way. Like I love fun. And when something is fun and I have personal relationships, I'm much, even that much more devoted. But yeah, I loved it. I mean, I miss it. You know, it's hard. And, and we're trying to figure out how do we build a startup remote with people with differing needs, with differing ages. You know, some are parents, some are not. Like we're all now across the country. Like it's challenging. And I crave that still. I mean, my I have my vision board up and my word of the year is connection. Because when I was doing a lot of reflection, I was like, what is the one thing that I am needing right now? And as, you know, a single 20 something, I was like, I crave people. I crave connection. And that's even why I want to like chat with people like you and start the show. And I'm trying to figure it out. Hugs. You know, it's, it's very difficult. It's very difficult. And so I think I don't even have the answers, but I know that I need that. And I, at least I've identified it. And I'm trying to figure it out. But yeah, I, I feel the same way. I, I miss the 2019 work setting. Okay, well, maybe you and I offline can have a little mind meld on this. I'm serious. I would love to. Because it seems like we're very aligned on our approaches. So I would love to talk more about this. Yeah, and we can share tips of what's worked and what's not worked. Because we've tried a lot of things at this point too. Okay, cool. So I would love to just kind of start at the beginning a little bit, I guess, and just kind of dive into your childhood. We'll do a bit of a turning for a second. So obviously now you're this massive entrepreneur and we'll get into it, but you had your career. I hinted at it in the bio, but building up Google, building up YouTube, building up AOL, and then kind of going off and being a startup founder and really doing your own thing, which we'll get into. 
when you were younger, like, did you think business was it? I mean, I can't imagine when you were younger, you were any different and people weren't coming up to you and being like, oh, this girl's going to like lead teams and like build cool stuff. But maybe I'm wrong. What was that like? Oh, that's really funny. Well, you know, I'm an 80s kid. So people were just unaware and there wasn't the interwebs. Literally, there wasn't the internet. When I was a kid, I wanted to be the president of the United States of America. Mm, That also tracks. It was like either you were going to do business or be the president. Yeah. I used to say that too, which is kind of funny. I still want to be the president. You do a good job. I'd vote for you. You know, I don't know if I'd do a great job. I think you would. So I've always been an activist ever since I was a child. And I've always been acutely aware of the inequities around us, specifically in the United States, specifically for black and brown people since I was six. And in my little six-year-old brain, making change meant being the president. That was the way to do it. Like if I wanted to make change and create equity, notice I'm not using the word equality. Very, very different listeners. Google equity and equality, very different. Equity is you have the same opportunities, same, you are on par and things are equitable. Equitable for iPhone women starts on the cap table. So I am very focused on making our cap table. Well, it's been diverse from day one. But the equity on the cap table, which creates the wealth for the people, that's what I'm talking about. So I want to be president. I wouldn't run now because it's just such a shit show. It's just like it's politics is, is so awful. And I think I probably can have a larger impact in the private sector. But injustices in this country make me crazy, which is the reasons why I started this business. Good for you for doing something about it. I love hearing you talk about it. I mean, good for you for doing something about that. And I will say, I think you do a good job because you also hire well. And I think something about being president is like they have to hire really important people. So I stand by my comment about you being great at it. But thank you, Erica. I'm thinking chief of staff for you. <laughs> That's very kind. I'm thinking a chief of staff role is in your future. We'd be a good team. But yeah, I mean, that's so funny you say that and and how it's shifted a bit now, really creating change in the private sector just seems more reasonable and that you've kind of picked whichever avenue that is, but your real overarching vision is really create change for people that you care about, marginalized communities, which is really, really cool. So ever since you were young, this is what you were passionate about. And then you decide to go off to college and you double majored in very, very interesting majors, which now makes sense now that we're chatting. Would you mind telling me a little bit more about your college experience and why you picked your majors the way you did? Totally. So I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison, go Badgers. I loved it. I loved it, loved it, loved it. Like super big liberal dot of a place in Wisconsin, which is not liberal, but that's in a whole other story. But yeah, so Madison is fabulous. Big 10 sports, love that. I was a sorority girl, if you can imagine. But like, remember, I'm 20 million years older than you guys. I loved being in my sorority. I loved, I was always a girl's girl, always a girl's girl. I can't believe I'm talking about my sorority. Like, that's so random. But shout out to Alpha Fees at Wisconsin. I was going to say, what sorority were you in, Alpha V? I was a Tri-Delta. Where did you go to school? USC in LA. US, a Tri-Delta, USC. Oh, my God. Shout out. Shout out. <laughs> oh, my God. You guys were mage. And I feel like you guys were all in, like, the press and stuff for, like, some shit. Some not some shit, but some stuff. Who knows? There's always things. You know what? Throughout my time, there were 10 things. I don't even know. I can't keep, I can't keep it all straight. There's so many issues with Greek life. Exactly. Did they circle your cellulite? They didn't do that to us. Thank God they did not. No, that was not our sorority, but crazy stuff. But anyway, okay. So Alpha Phi at Wisconsin and we loved it. So I majored in African-American studies with a double major in U.S. history. And 
at the time, I knew why I was majoring in it. I was majoring in it because, again, from a six-year-old child, I'd always been fascinated with race, unafraid to talk about it, but having no outlet. I mean, when I say DE&I or the words diversity, inclusion, equity, those weren't even words that people said back in the 80s, right, at all. I went off to college in 1992, and here was this major at this major prestigious university in Black studies. And I was like, I have found my people. I mean, literally, I'm not like a Rachel Dalzell trying to like be Black and like be the head of the end of LACP fraudulently. Like, let's be clear. But I am extraordinarily devoted to, I are, already understand the mechanics of it. Under, it was understanding the why. And now it's about fixing the problem, the centuries old, the 400 year old problem, right? It's not, uh, it's, it's not rocket science about why we're here and why the, the rich are white men and vast majority of people that are, you know, below the poverty line are people of color. So, you know, these things I just can't live with necessarily. So when I saw that there was a major, I was like all about it. And I took a class called Black Exploitation in Film. And we watched Schaff and Foxy Brown and even just seeing these movies from sort of the black exploitation era, which was sort of the late 60s, early 70s, where they it was just all about like glamorizing gang violence and like these guys in these like fly suits and like all this jive talk. And like it was so dehumanizing and just so stereotypically gross. And we learned about that. We were able to dissect these films. And obviously we were reading real books and, you know, exposure to Toni Morrison and all these amazing authors and who would actually come and speak at campus. Like we had a really robust program. So I was exposed to incredible activists at a young age and I didn't know what I was going to do with my major. I knew that I was passionate about it. I remember my dad and my parents are both super liberal activists and my dad would call me on like the landline in my dorm. And he was like, he speaks with a very thick Boston accent. I'm not going to like do it. Maybe I'll hop into it. We'll see. But he was like, and he's a very deep voice like me. He's like, care. What is this black exploitation in film? He's like, you got an A, but like, what am I paying for? And meanwhile, Wisconsin at that point was $13,000 a year for out of state. Times have changed. Yeah. And my parents like could barely afford it. So he's like, what am I paying for? I was like, I don't know exactly, but I love it. I'm learning and I'm going to class. So, you know, feel good about that. Fast forward 20 years later, we now know exactly why I was so interested and I majored in that because my career at iFundWomen is to close the funding gap for women entrepreneurs, 89% of whom are women of color. On iFundWomen, our membership base is made up of 75% women of color, 22% Caucasian women and about 3% that say they don't want to tell us their race, which is fine. And the vast majority of our women of color entrepreneurs are black women. And so we launched iFund Women of Color a couple of years ago to address the unique challenges that women of color entrepreneurs face when raising capital that are very different from the challenges that white women face. I mean, we all face some similar challenges, but when we did the research and what when now what I'm saying, we, Olivia Owens, who was employee number one at I Find Women and who's the- Oh, she's amazing. Oh, Olivia's like the best. So she founded and created I Find Women of Color. And it was in direct response to the fact that for the first few years of funding on I Find Women, 70% of the funding was going to the less than 30% of white women. 
over 70% of women of color were raising 30% of the funding. And so, you know, mid year two or three, I was like, Olivia, not on my watch. Like no fucking way. I was like, no way, dude. Go find an engineer and a product person and build this thing. And she did. And in one year of having the platform up, because if you can find it, you can fund it. We took the cumulative funding volume over four years up to parity, where 51% of the funding volume, and remember, it's cumulative. In one year, we fixed the cum. 51% women of color and 49% white founders. And we're just getting started. And what we're learning through our research and our data is that, I mean, obviously, we didn't learn this through research and data. Women of color are not a monolith. We've got Black women, we've got Indigenous women, we've got mixed people of all sorts. Our South Asian population is growing. Our East Asian population is growing. Our Hispanic next population is growing. But for our Black women founders, who again are the, the vast majority still, we asked them like, what are your biggest barriers to capital? Because we've all seen like the Amex studies and all these other great studies out there that talk about capital is the number one barrier to, to starting up. Then it's lack of access to coaches and mentors. That's about 50% of women responded with that. And then the 30% of women at large responded with the lack of access to connections. Now, when we did that same study with our black entrepreneurs, they inverted the second two. Whereas they were like, the coaching is great. Please with the mentorship. Like we're done being mentored. These women work at fang companies. They're very, very smart corporate women. So like, they're like, enough with the mentorship. Where are the connections to the banking relationships, the corporate partners, and the money, the sources of capital? So that's why we built iPhone Women of Color, because we knew we needed to create programming that specifically addressed this pain point that was marked as the second biggest pain point, connections, besides for capital. So super proud of that. And yeah, that's why I majored in African-American studies. That is so interesting. And it makes perfect sense when you think about it, because connections are generational a lot of the time. And we hear it joked around like, oh yeah, this one's a legacy. Mommy and daddy got me this job, whatever. It's, it's a joke. And we see it in entertainment, you know, TV movies. But if you really think about it, that's part of the issue is the connections. It's the generational. It's, oh yeah, I already went through it myself. I'm not a first gen. I already went to college. My grandpa went to college and he knows this one who knows this one, you know, and hearing you phrase it like that, the difference. I think that's what's so important too is highlighting these statistics for people so they wake up and see it. Because it's, you know, we can say it's an important issue, but like to really talk about, no, no, this survey shows a, a difference here between numbers two and number three. And this is the reason why, pay attention. And so I think something that I really love about what you guys are doing is obviously the platform, obviously the product, obviously the team. But like, I think the information sharing you guys are doing is really changing the narrative. And personally, for me, it has, you know, and I just love that you guys are able to share this information with the world so that they have to pay attention. You, data doesn't lie. And so thank you for that. So and then obviously, what's very cool, too, is that you actually studied this stuff, which I think is something that's also pretty rare nowadays is you've got the knowledge, you've got the US history, how has this country created some of these issues, and and other issues. And then the African American say, like, what are we gonna do about it now? How are people showing up in the media? And so I think that's what's really cool is like, you have your background, your years of, of business experience, business background, but you've also got this really fundamental like education that has obviously really helped you now. So you study African American studies in US history at Wisconsin. And then you decide to, like everyone get a job after college. And I know you worked at Google and YouTube and AOL, but what was that first job 
out of college before Google. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Oh, girl. Okay. So right after college, back in my day, the big consulting firms and the big sort of finance companies would come to campus. And I'm sure they do this now, of course, obviously, and recruit. And every one of my friends was like, they had a job their senior year at an ad agency, at a bank, all lined up. I was literally the only one, except for my other friend, Meredith. We were like, yeah, we just don't really want, we're just not feeling that path. And Meredith also was my only other compatriot in African-American studies. So shout out to Meredith. We were the only two white kids in the the program. So I was not one of those people that had any clue what I wanted to do. And I also didn't feel any pressure to make any decisions. I really didn't. Fun has been kind of like the through line throughout my life. I just wanted to have fun. I wanted to like see live music and like enjoy my 20s. I had always waitressed. I had always worked from the time I was 13 years old. I love to work. I love, love, love to work. And I love sales. And so I worked all through college. I was a bartender at a men's gay bar at the Capitol. I was the worst bartender, by the way. I was a bartender by accident. First, I was a cocktail waitress at like boys gay night. And they were like, why are you here? I'm like, dude, I don't know, (laughs) but it's fine. They were like, where are the cute boys? I'm like, you got me. I'm very sorry, but you know, whatever. And then the bartender didn't show up one night and they were like, can you bartend? I'm like, totally. Meanwhile, not one clue. First drink I was asked to make was a Manhattan. I had no clue what that was. I'd only drank like wine and beer and like, that's it. So I had to like look it up behind the bar. But anyway, yet I digress. So I'd always worked in the hospitality business. Like I was a short order cook, which was really fun at a breakfast place. And I was a barista. I was a server at a fine dining restaurant at top of the hub, RIP in Boston, top of the Prudential Center. So I was like, I'm just going to like bartend or waitress and just see what I want to do. I ended up moving to Italy because I loved Italy and I'd backpacked the summer before. So I was like, I'm going to go live in Italy for a while just because food, I don't know. I just literally back then there wasn't that much pressure or at least my parents didn't put pressure on me. God bless them, honestly, because we could have used some real money around these parts back then. But they were just like, they didn't give me any money. They were like, go live your life, sister. So I went and lived in Italy for a while. It gives you independence. Yeah. It's like sink or swim. I'd saved up a bunch of money, like $10,000, which was a lot of money. Back in 1996, my senior year of college, I saved $10,000. I went and lived in Florence, Italy for about a year and a half, which was incredible. And then I ran out of money. So I came home to Canton, Massachusetts and lived with my parents for a hot second. I was a waitress and then moved into Boston and got a job. My first job was at a trade show production company at the Javits Center. So it was a company out of Boston and I was selling booths. I was the like a booth bitch. But if you're good at sales, you can sell anything. So I'm sure you were great at that. Oh, not only did I sell booths, I sold like the water coolers at the Javits Center. I sold the stairs. They wanted me to sell the ads inside these programs for like these fashion shows or like the gift show or do you know what trade shows are? I do. Yeah, a little bit. I've never been to one, but I know what they are. Yeah. Yeah. They're kind of dated. And, but it's basically like, there's a big show in Vegas called Magic. And it's where all these apparel brands, like very cool streetwear brands, they go and they sell wholesale to buyers from all over the world that come to 
find their stuff. That's what I did. I sold the booths. But they wanted me to sell like ads in the program. And I was like, those ads are lame. Like, let's sell the stairs. Let's sell the elevator. Let's sell the water cooler. Let's sell like the inside of the stall of the bathroom. So I did that for a year. And then for another year, I worked at a company called The Entertainment Book, which we used to affectionately call Jewish food stamps. It was this big, thick book of coupons that they used to give out at our temple. You get a buy it for like $25 and you would get like a buy one, get one free at like a restaurant. I did door to door sales. My region was Massachusetts and New Hampshire. I went door to door to restaurants selling them into this coupon book. And I learned more from that job about sales than anything. It was really very scrappy. Well, thank you for sharing all that. I mean, I think this is why we do the show is just to get real about it and like what cool experiences that shaped all the stuff you did later and like moving to Italy because you can. And when you're married with kids and you've got a lot of responsibility, you can't pick up and go and like using your 20s to have fun, like you said, and then trying some sales jobs. And I actually, I do know magic. I have, um, shout out my cousin, Jessica. She's got a really cool lingerie brand. Awesome. Oh, I love lingerie. What's it called? It's called Naked Rebellion. They sell lingerie and basically like undergarments and bodysuits for in all different nude shades, similar to Skims in a bit. She was sort of like the original Skims, but she's amazing. And so, yeah, shout out Jess. So I know about that. And then obviously this door to door, like selling this book. I mean, did you like, I mean, you've said you love sales, but like, did you like sales at that time? And did you think you're really good at it? We hear often like entrepreneurs, you know, like the classic Sarah Blakely was selling fax machines door to door and she was good at it, but didn't love it. And how was that experience? Did you like the sales and were you like, oh, this is my calling? Or was it just sort of like a stopping point until you kept figuring out what you wanted to do? I liked sales because I'm an extrovert as well. And I like talking to people and I actually like listening to their actual business problems and trying to solve them. And I felt like I was doing that with the coupons. Honestly, the problem that they were trying to solve was getting more people in the door, foot traffic, people that hadn't tried their restaurants before. And these coupon books were going to people all around the area. And coupons back then were, you know, buy one, get one free at a fine dining restaurant would save somebody, you know, 50 bucks. And a couple that's, you know, on a tight budget, 50 bucks on a Saturday night, you know, again, back then it's all relative, is a big deal. So I like the fact that I was solving the problem. What I didn't like about that job was I didn't feel physically safe as a young woman, literally driving around New England. Not that it's unsafe. There's unsafe places everywhere. There's unsafe places in my neighborhood, which is a very wealthy neighborhood. You know what I mean? Like they're just, you can't, say like, oh, I don't want to go to this area because it's unsafe. That's a bunch of BS. There's weird people everywhere. Anyway, but that's the only thing I didn't like about that door-to-door job is as a woman going into an establishment, and especially we would go in when the restaurant wasn't open. So we were talking to the owner or the manager and would make appointments with them before they opened or after, you know, during a, the lull time or whatever. And sometimes I did not feel super safe with the restaurant owners who were largely male. So that's what I did not love about door-to-door sales. And I didn't love like parking my car and like going to the parking garage alone. Like that stuff was not, you know, I'm a survivor and I didn't feel safe. So I didn't do it for that long. I did it for a year. And then I met my husband. I was in Boston. He was in New York, moved to New York and got my first job in digital at salon.com, which is a web magazine still around. And that was in 1998. And I was slinging banners. This was the early days of the interwebs. 
And all we had to sell was banners. And I literally like wanted to introduce every sales call with like, my name's Karen and I sell banners. That's like how it felt. And that's what led me to Google. It's actually the experience at Salon was very interesting because, and again, this was in my 20s. So I was 24 when I worked at Salon. Because my voice is deep, people either love it or hate it, depending on their gender. Women love it. Men think it's too direct and bossy and it emasculates them. It's a real problem in my love life. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I love it. I think it's cool. And if you know what, people don't like it, it's their problem. I know, but it's not something I can change. Of course. Like a lot of things men and people don't like about us, we can't change. A lot of things. So take it or leave it. That's the attitude, you know? Take it or leave it. But you know, homegirl wants a boyfriend. So like, so when I was at Salon, the first audiobook was being recorded ever, like way before Audible, before Amazon. Like this was like, none of this stuff even existed. And they were recording the first audiobook. And the producer he was like literally roaming around the office and like trying to find someone to read this book. And he was like, Karen, you have a good voice. Can you come into the sound booth and test read for this thing? And I was like, okay, but like, I'm not a voiceover actor, nor am I an actor. And I'm also pretty monotone. But I'm like, I can think, I think I can kind of do anything. And like, I'll, I'll try anything, especially in your 20s. Like, try everything, people. Don't talk yourself out of anything. So I went into the sound booth and I read twice. And they were like, all right, Karen, thanks. You can go back to selling ads now. I was like, told y'all, it's not easy. Okay, so we're slinging ads at Salon. And then we somehow get to Google very early, which just for context, and I'm sure you can add a lot more color to this than I can, but you went to Google basically right when it started. I mean, it was a two and a half, three years. I mean, really soon after Google got started. Can you talk about that? I mean, that's wild. Of course. So I went to Google in January of 2001. So they had been operating for like a year and a half. And people thought I was nuts. So here's why I went to Google. I'm going to tell you exactly why I went to Google. Nobody knew about it. I mean, really nobody knew about it, especially in, in New York. Because Silicon Valley Company, I was in New York. I was slinging banners at Salon. And I would work my butt off to get these insertion orders. I don't know what they're called now for like placing banner ads. And the buys would go through. We'd put the banners up for Lexus or whoever. And we'd watch the ad trafficking tools back then. I don't even remember what they're called. And I was like, oh, shit. People are not clicking on these banners. And the people that do click on them are not doing anything when they go to the websites. And I knew innately, like, I'm a visionary. And sometimes I can see the future very clearly. Like, it's there have been three or four times in my life where, like, I truly see the future and that exact same thing happens. And I'm not like a clairvoyant or a medium or any of that. I do believe in that stuff, but like, I'm not that. Can you give us one example? Was there one thing that you were like, I knew this was, or maybe it's what you're sharing, but I'd love to know one thing. Yeah. Well, so one example, there's a couple, but one example was I knew right then and there that the internet was going to be completely monetized and run on ads, period even though, yes, I was selling ads, but there were hardly any websites, right? And, you know, all these things didn't exist. And the idea of direct response ads and Facebook ads and retargeting like that was so far in the future. I was like, ROI on internet ads is going to be what fuels the growth of the internet, growth of bandwidth, all this content for free, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. So I was like, shit, I better find a place to work where the ads perform. 
And even that thought was very bleeding edge. So what I did was I went to my media buyers, the agencies. This was back in the day where we would have like a jeans party or like go to the spa and like wine and dine our media buyers. And I will never forget this. So I just was like, I was on a mission. So I called up a couple of good friends who were media buyers. I was like, can I come in and just like have an off the record chat with you? Actually, one of them is Erica Nardini, who's now CEO of Barstool Sports. So shout out Erica. So I remember talking to her. I was like, dude, what performs on your media plan? What drives ROI? And she was like, search. And I was like, all right, thanks. So I went back to my apartment and sent my resume to Lycos, RIP, Alta Vista, RIP, and Google. Jobsgoogle.com. And I got called from jobsgoogle.com the next day. They were looking for someone to cover the New England and Canada territory, which is ridiculous, but that's what they did back then. And that's what I was covering for Salon. So anyway, I was hired two weeks later and it was because of that instinct of that knowing, seeing the future of how the internet was going to be able to proliferate. What was going to pay for that? Brands are going to pay for the proliferation of technology. I knew that early on. So then I went to Google and the rest is sort of history. But yeah, Google was a, an amazing historic experience, especially then I feel like I got my MBA in the internet. And I love the internet. I don't love it where it's, I don't love so much where it's going at the moment, but I did love it. What a cool story. Yeah, yeah. And the internet connects people. So that makes sense. The internet connects people. Yeah. And you're using the internet for good now, which is really cool. You know, not all of these big companies are, and you really are. And I think that's the goal, right? Is to, to try to create a little bit of impact, like taking it back to the very beginning, why you want to be president, right? Like making some change, doing some good, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I do want to ask you one final question that we ask all of our guests. I think you hinted a little bit at this, you know, like listen to that knowing. I think you have this ability to see things maybe a little bit more than others, but is there one piece of advice that you would give to every 20-something in the world? Yeah, honestly, have fun. Have fun. I'm not going to be like, find the joy. Does this bring you joy? That doesn't bring me joy. And I listen, I love that shit. Every time I look at something in my house, I'm like, does this bring me joy? No, and I get rid of it. I donate it. But 20-somethings, have fun. Have fun. Safe fun. Consensual fun. Have fun. Just enjoy your freaking life travel. You have your whole life to work. It's almost like unfair because by the time you are, not that like my life is in any way, shape or form over. It's just beginning in so many ways. I feel like I'm in my twenties. I genuinely do. I feel like I'm perpetually stuck in this like 26 year old world. That's a great feeling. It's a great vibe. That's my vibe. And people might be like, oh my God, this chick is really delusional, but it's too bad that when you have all the wealth and the time to travel and have fun and do all that shit, you're in your like 60s and 70s. When in your 20s, you know, you've got the energy and the body to climb the mountains and do all the things. And, but yeah, have fun, enjoy your life. Like if COVID has taught us anything is that we can't control a thing and trying to control things is something I would also say like, don't do so much of, like don't try to control a lot of stuff. I love to control things, but I think this feels like very relevant advice to me. Just have fun. Don't feel like you have to take control. I'm really internalizing this right now. I'm like, this is what I need to be hearing. Yeah, well, listen, you're running a business and you have to control your business because if you don't, shit gets out of control. 
like real fast. But in life and in love, there's just so much you can control. So yes, organize and manage and control the things you can, but stop trying to control like or plan your future so much because who the fuck knows what's going to happen. Do what you love. And, you know, if you're in your 20s and listening to this and you're like, really want to go after that career and that's where you're fueled and your passion is, like, do that because that's fun. I love my job. My job is fun. And it's so, and if I was in my 20s, I'd be doing this anyway. Do what you love, do what you enjoy doing, make a living doing it. There are also like awesome service related jobs that people used to think were like, I mean, People probably still think they're like menial labor, but like I loved waitressing. It's my favorite job ever. Besides for coaching at iFun Women. You want to know something crazy? There's a stereotype that you people say like, oh, if you waitress, it's a menial job. You can't make that much money or whatever. I went to a breakfast place randomly in Phoenix, Arizona and had a wonderful chat with the waitress. And she makes more waitressing than she did at her six-figure sales job. And she was like, it's more fun. And I make good money. And like, I think that's another stereotype we can just like quench right here. Like you can make great, great money. And if that's what you find fun, then do that. And that, but you might make way more money than you would at some corporate nine to five. So I think that's a great point too. Like we, there's these stereotypes. It's like, that's actually not reality if you look at the numbers of it. So totally. And there's such a need for people that work in hospitality, people that work in healthcare and people that work in education. And there are so many incentives from whether it's recruiting companies or the actual organizations that are running these jobs to get into those fields because of COVID. We have hardly any teachers. We have hardly any healthcare workers. They have PTSD from watching all these people die. And in the restaurants and hotels, like need help desperately and they are paying so well. So I would say like for people in their 20s that don't really know what they want to do, but are extroverts and like to be around people, go get that waitressing job, dude, or waitering job or bartending job or work at a hotel, work at a front desk. I don't know. I think there's like no shame in the game. And there's a lot of really great opportunity. You don't have to want to be a tech unicorn because by the way, that shit is hard. And all, and like we talked about a lot of the times you're not even profitable. It's not always what it looks like. So, well, Karen, this is such a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been so, so fun and just chatting and getting to see you again and it's been so cool. So I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for digging me up from Girlboss. I met so many great people at that event at UCLA. It was like three years ago. I met on our product team, our UX UI designer, Roswell Barletta, shout out. We met out on the grass in front of those like big statues where people were like Instagramming. I go out there and she's a photographer as well. I see her with like people in my team and she's like taking pictures. I'm like, who is this girl? So I sit on the grass and I'm just chatting with Roswell. I'm like, so what do you do? She's like, oh, I work for a movie studio. I'm in UX, UI. I'm like, oh, we're looking for a UX, UI person. She's like, where are you located? I'm like, New York. She's like, I've always wanted to move to New York. She's like, who do you use as an agency? I'm like, Pentagram. And she literally like fell off her chair. For those who don't know, Pentagram is a very just iconic branding agency in New York City. Look them up. And we were using them to do our rebrand. So she literally dropped down onto the grass, started rolling around and convulsing. She was like, please, can I apply for this job? I'm like, totally. Meanwhile, she started working for us three weeks later. So a lot of great things came out of that conference. So thank you, Sophia, even though I know you don't own the company anymore. Thank you, Sophia. 
yeah, it was so, so cool. And, and like, there's nothing like IRL events with women that want to support other women. And like, I've also had some similar experiences where it's like, oh, hey, look, we kind of knew each other. How can I help you? And just those weak ties, I think, go such a long way. Well, will you please let everyone know where they can follow you on social? And then I know you guys just revamped your podcast. So definitely, we've got a lot of podcast listeners. So please let them know so they can hear more of you guys. Awesome. Okay, so for you podcast lovers and Startup Files, we have the I Find Women Show podcast, which is live coaching by me, where we're solving one problem for one entrepreneur in every episode. And it's really fun. So check it out, the I Find Women Show podcast, wherever you get your pods. And then... If you want to follow iPhone Women, we're at iPhone Women on all the socials. And I'm at Karen Khan on all the socials. And yeah, you'll find on my stuff, you'll find everything from my uh, after skin scrub excitement. I did a real last night. I got more of my goop glow scrubby shit. And I was like, thank God, scrubbed it up. And I was like, I'm going to make a reel about that. I love that. So, you know, you're going to get business. You're going to get skincare. You're going to get some comedy. But at iPhone Women, you'll just get business. So you probably just want to follow that. I love it. All kinds of content, you know, or follow both and see what you like, you know, just enjoy. Choose your own adventure. Have fun. So good. Well, Karen, this has been so awesome. Thank you again. And it's so nice to connect with you and best of luck with everything. I'm rooting for you. I'm rooting for you. You as well. Thanks, man. All right. Well, if you guys enjoyed this conversation, please give us a follow over at Dear 20 Something on Instagram and subscribe, rate, and review anywhere you get podcasts. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.